0: Well Zach, here we are at Tribe Fest as we record this over the weekend. This is the way that fans nowadays connect to the players of the current Indians organization. But in years past, Tribe Fest didn't always exist. In fact, there were other ways that fans were forced to connect to their ball players in ways. Forced Well, depends on
1: You're gonna go in there and you're gonna get Jim Tomey's autograph whether you like it or
0: not depends on what you, th- what you think of the word trade wreck and how you would describe certain things you might have witnessed in this the podcast late for 90s. one. before tribe fest there was tribe jam yes and for anybody that has fallen along on the athletic this week you're now brought back up to speed on what the hell was tribe jam zach you were all over this story from the jump was something you just had to write. And this this story took you years to craft and put
1: together. <laughs> Literally took multiple years. Uh, Started in 2018.
0: But it was a, a, a fun read. And I I remember bits and pieces of, of that. And I wasn't there, but I remember seeing video of that in the, the late 90s. And I remember the stories of Jim Tomey playing a guitar that wasn't plugged in but you were able to separate the fact from the fiction and find out what actually happened at Tribe Jam. So, I'll start from the beginning.
1: Also, welcome to a bonus edition of the Selby's Godcast. The the funniest part about this, and again, if you you haven't read On The Athletic, uh, go check it out. Two-part series, one on Tribe Jam, uh, and the second part on a cool friendship between Omar Vizquel and Paul Sedotti, Taylor Swift's guitarist, and a local Clevelander, or native Clevelander, um, and just kind of all the ties between the 90s Indians and music. I wasn't planning to write this. I went down to North Carolina to hang out with Omar Vizquel for a day to write a story about him and about his managing pursuits and why the hell this 51-year-old accomplished veteran of Major League Baseball who played for a quarter of a century and... Uh, wants to manage is managing 19-year-olds in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We were talking in his office that day about how, you know, when he was in Cleveland, it was so important for him a couple things. One, to be part of, like, the fabric of the community and, and to go out and be seen and to do things and to stay busy and to just do things that just captivate his attention. And... Um, so he would go to bars, and he would he would look for live music, and he would go to art shows, and he would go to comedy clubs. And first of all, I feel like you don't really see that too much anymore. Like, I don't know that Francisco Lindor is going out and, I don't know, listening to a lounge singer at Johnny's downtown. I don't even know how Drive much Fest you or,
0: just see players connect to the local community yeah. like you used to players now have so much to do in the offseason and basically don't have an offseason that they're all over the place
1: right and I knew two years ago in September when the Tigers played in Cleveland and Omar Vizquel was the first base coach he went out after a Friday night game to Wild Eagle Saloon down the street from the ballpark and his buddy Paul Sidoti they were he had a local cover band and they were playing a bunch of 80s hits and him and Omar have been friends for 20 years and Omar gets on stage and like he used to do in the 90s he played he performed crazy train by Ozzy Osbourne and like there were 200 people at the bar and they're all they've all got their iPhones out and they're recording it and they're like having a great time and uh so I asked Omar like do you still do that kind of thing here like in Winston-Salem you don't know the area it's not like there's you know, you don't hear people say, Oh, have you checked out Winston-Salem's, like, bar scene and Live Meat? Like, it's not that kind of place. But he'll do whatever he can to find that sort of scene. And it led down this path to... We started talking about Tribe Jam and just what he used to do in the 90s. And I googled really quick something about Tribe Jam and found this, like, photo album. And he's scrolling through and just laughing hysterically, like, I can't believe just how foolish we looked but it was so much fun and it was the fans loved it and it was like you know we talk about how the 90s Indians were rock stars they literally were here where you had Omar on stage Jim Tomey on stage Richie Sexton Mark Langston who 99 was his only season with the Indians it was his last season in the majors he had all these music connections because he liked to play guitar and when he was in Seattle he got to be friends with Eddie Money he got to be friends with the drummer from the band Yes he got to be friends with uh, a local band out there called Magic Bus, who served as the house band for the first Tribe Jam concert, and this all came together so quickly. Uh, it came together more quickly than it took me to write the story, but in in a matter of like a month or so, you went from Paul Sedotti befriending Omar Vaskel and Mark Langston and Richie Sexton to having Tribe Jam, and next thing you know, like Michael Stanley's involved, and so it was. First of all, the process of writing the story was so much fun because even though it was 20 years ago, like, these guys remember. Dave Berba remembered the song he performed each year. First year, (laughs) it was Brick House, and he's, like, he he was like a lunatic screaming on stage. The second year, um, it was Walk This Way by Aerosmith. And then the third year, he did Ice Cream Man by Van Halen, and he was dressed like an ice cream vendor, came through the crowd, people were tipping him. Like, those guys had so much fun. You could never pull this off today, which sucks, because I've said the Indians should do this. They're hosting the All-Star Game. It would be so much fun if you had, like, Lindor on stage and Ramirez and Tito. Um, But just, like, (laughs) What musical instrument would Tito be playing I mean, the freaking Bourbon and shook maracas. Like, Omar played the tambourine at one point. They see, had a cowbell. I could see Tito with the Couldn't triangle. See, yeah, like, or the cowbell. Ding, 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 ding. Um, but it was, it was really cool, and the funny part was, one, talking to all the players and getting their recollections of it, and then I, I got my hands on a video copy of the first concert, and seeing, like... Tommy was like, yeah, it was fun. My guitar was unplugged so it took some of the nerves away but like yeah had a good time. And then seeing the video and seeing how awkward Tommy looked and how dorky he looked, it was unbelievable. Um, and then I'll just remember Michael Stanley saying when I told him, I'm like, yeah, I've got the video of this. I'm gonna go watch it later today And he's like, "Oh shit, you better take your meds before watching that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like like it was it was really really cool uh, and I just you don't see that kind of thing anymore.
0: Yeah, I, the stories that, that I remember from it were, were fun to kind of relive as you were piecing it together, Then ultimately I got to read your story. The one quote that stuck with me, though, was Bob DiBiaseo of the Indians. Yeah. When he said that they could have held a game in a parking lot of a Kmart, was that Giant, what he said? Giant Eagle. Giant Eagle. And it really did feel that way, you know, just the state of the city, the Browns ultimately leaving, the team being good, the personalities that they had, it all came together in such a way that, yeah, there was that feeling. The fans would have got together to see the Indians do just about anything and would have loved the hell out of it. But the fact that it was music, it always comes back to that thought that athletes want to be musicians, yep. musicians want to be actors, actors want to be athletes. Yeah. It's like the, this endless loop of... If you're in that realm, everybody would love to try their hand at doing something different. And some of, those, some of the guys uh, that had the musical talent, it's fantastic to, to watch and, and look back on. Omar was but it's, so good on the drums. But it is, it's even better to see guys who don't necessarily have a, t- a ton of skill but just right. are up having fun with it because that's seeing somebody having fun like that as, a, as someone that's just watching it, even if it's not a great musical performance it's going to go down in history for the musical art of it just the enjoyment of seeing guys go out there
1: and not give a shit whether or not they're going to look good or not that was fun that was cool to relive I miss that I think that's part of what makes that's what made like the personalities in baseball we were just talking about this with Ryan Lewis about how you know 20 years ago how things were
0: always better back in
1: the day (laughs) yeah but you would you would get up early to watch this week in baseball because they would have cool interviews with players on the field and and you get to glean those personalities and, and now guys are afraid to make fools of themselves and i remember sandy elmar said sandy elmar was one of the guys him and Nagy and paul shuey who kind of stood off to the side and drank beer and watched and laughed at their teammates <laughs> um he said he didn't want to make a fool out of himself dave burba said shit i didn't care <laughs> like i got out there he he, had a, he stuck a maraca down his pants and twerked. <laughs> I mean, that says it all. And I'm not saying you need Lindor and Kluber to do that, but, man, it would just be... Imagine if you could just see those personalities shine on stage and and have... Baseball has such a hard time marketing its players and connecting them to the casual fan. And this was, like, the perfect way to do that. I mean, it was Michael Stanley got up on stage and was saying how... He would have traded in his, his guitar for an infielder's glove. He loved baseball so much. He would have wished he could have been a utility infielder. And then you got Omar, who's like, man, I wish I could be a rock star. <laughs> it, like, it really is the perfect match.
0: Yeah, it was, it was fun to read. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you got to tell that story because it's one that maybe some people weren't even aware of, that it happened. Uh, but very cool to see some of those personalities come together and to see what people remember and what stood out and <laughs> and maybe what wasn't remembered, and and some of the things forgotten for various reasons. Uh, but I don't know. Was there anything that that really stuck? It uh, stood out to you as far as something you didn't know or didn't anticipate going in that really floored you or surprised you or even just made you laugh?
1: Yeah, a couple things. One, during that first Tribe Jam concert, Jim told me he had a bat, and he used the bat. And he, like, pretended to hit. They had, like, a Liberty Bell replica. He pretended. He swung the bat at the bell. And that's how they, like, started Hell's Bells. And then a few minutes later, he brought the bat back out. And this balloon that had New York written on the side. And it was a black balloon. They were playing the Yankees that weekend. So I think that was the impetus. But also, you know, the Indians and Yankees were. They had a nice rivalry going in the late 90s. And uh, Tomy swung the bat. Hit the balloon, confetti spread all across the stage. And the the lead singer of the house band just yells, "Yeah, that's what you guys are gonna do to New York!" And, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> and that was it was '99, and two weeks later, they blew a two nothing lead in the ALDS, and the Red Sox advanced to face the Yankees instead. But um, it was there was you know there was just so much camaraderie and so much obviously the Indians owned the city. It was it was crazy because it was. Like two weeks after the Browns came back, but obviously you knew the Browns weren't gonna gonna be good for a while, and the Indians just ran the town, and and just they really were rock stars at that time, and and especially the guys who were here for a while, Omar, Tommy, um, it, it was it was it was cool talking to Tommy too. It was like, he was so even to, it sounded like he was timid talking about it, because I think he enjoyed it and it was cool, but like.
0: They he, made understood,
1: him, he understood that that wasn't his scene. Yeah, and they made him, like, especially in the later years, he was, he was the star. <laughs> and they put funky sunglasses on him and gave him an electric guitar that wasn't plugged in. And he sang I Got You, Babe by uh, Sonny and Cher with m- one of the members of Michael Stanley's band. Uh, <laughs> so walk us through, how did the guitar get smashed? It was on, a, I don't remember the song. I can't remember, it was either, it was was the last year, and, you know, he was, he was, not that he was hesitant to do it, but he was like, you're right, he was out of his element. And they had to assure him, and they were like, I I know one person said, they were like, dude, just go on stage, you're fucking Jim Tomey, like, just hold this guitar, (laughs) pretend like you're having fun, and and the people are going to eat it up.
0: And he's just not one to want to be... Look at me, look at me. Spotlight's yeah. gotta be on me. That's never been sure. his
1: personality. So the last year they were like, why don't you smash a guitar? Because that that's what rockers do and it, it could be fun. So he smashed it. It didn't like it's not like he shattered the thing. It's like there's like a little not a little a a slice missing off the end of it. <laughs> but uh he you know, David Spiro, who is one of the people He managed Michael Stanley for a while and uh, Joe Walsh of the Eagles. He worked with Ringo Starr for a long time. Uh, a prominent native Clevelander who still lives here and has worked with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a long time. So he he was in on this and helped plan it every year. And so Tommy signed the guitar after that concert, and I know Sparrow still has it in his office in Cleveland. So uh, it was it had run its course after three years. The the roster changed. They started their rebuild in two thousand two. And I think they they made a good decision ending it. Um, But those three years, I know it was was a big hit. It raised a lot of money for charity. Something isn't special because it lasts. Right. I believe that
0: is what Vision said at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron, one of your favorite movies of all time.
1: I also think, you know, an eye-opening thing was getting to know Omar, who's just got this boundless energy about him, even at 51 years old. It's incredible. But... TJ, I know, like, you were with me when we we heard some of these stories about him, and just he, not he he like him and Robbie Alomar. There's been a lot of stories about how they didn't necessarily get along and love each other, but like, that's rare. If you've been around Omar for two minutes, that energy is infectious. He's he's a thoughtful guy. Uh, he has turned heads. He's going to be managing a double A this year. He's moving up the system. I know he wants to manage in the major leagues, and he's like what he did last year with with some of the White Sox prospects. I know they were raving about it. He is like you want him in your clubhouse. You wanted him in your clubhouse back then. you You want him now. And it's like some of the stories, remember, Matt Williams had just gone through his divorce when he came to Cleveland and was going through a rough time. And he had the kids one weekend early in the season. And the Indians wanted to, like, do something nice for him because he was, you know, it was a struggle and they wanted to take his mind off things and and treat his his kids to a nice weekend in Cleveland. So the Indians had a connection at Swings and Things Mm -hmm. on the west side. And they got the owner to open the shop a couple hours early. And Matt Williams is going to take his kids there. And just, like, here you go. You have the run of the town just play putt-putt, play video games, do whatever you want for a couple hours, and Omar overheard this whole conversation happening, and he goes to to the Indians rep, and he says, hey, like, let me bring my kid Nico, and I'll go too, and that way Matt Williams doesn't have to be by himself, and I can get a couple other players who have little kids, and that that way it can be like a, a team bonding thing, and these kids can play together, and it'll be great, and like, that was just One of the stories, and there are many, of just he was a really good teammate and a really good glue guy in a clubhouse full of big personalities. You got guys like Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez, and uh, he was he was an important figure. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, maybe not Jose Mesa. Probably doesn't believe some
0: of the things that you said.
1: Yeah, true.
0: Uh, Put you right, and that was a a very cool story that we heard uh, as far as him and, and connecting with Matt Williams in a tough time. I, I'm i kind of not upset. I don't even know if I'm sad. But the way that his name has become very uh, volatile when it comes to Hall of Fame discussions, that yeah. people are just going to war over how good of a player he was, how good defensively he was i don't think I don't think the debate is as easy and as one sided as those that are as firmly against him being in the Hall of Fame have made it sound and make make you believe. I don't know that I would consider him a hall of famer. I'm still hesitant to say that I do having watched him play a lot of his career in Cleveland, I can say that I don't think for as much as i believe in defensive metrics and believe in numbers i don't think everything he did was wrapped up in those yeah i also think it's really really difficult to make a hall of fame case especially when talking about players that played 20 25 years ago based solely on defensive statistics because you just don't have a perfect way of you know, there's so much noise year to year and the way things were tracked. even today with having guys basically on radar twenty four seven. You don't have the most clear cut perfect picture picture at all times of a guy playing defense. And Omar, you're looking at his Hall of Fame case, just basing it specifically on defense. That's extremely difficult. But I guess I'm and and I don't know I don't know if this bothers him. Maybe you can shed some light on this. But I, I find it disheartening that there are some that almost And I know this is not their intent because you get wrapped up in this, like when you're talking about NFL draft picks, like one guy likes one quarterback, one guy likes another quarterback. doesn't mean that you think the other guy is trash. You just like the other guy more. I'm not sure that the conversation really is to make Omar Vasquez sound like he was a bad defensive player, but some of the arguments make it sound like, yeah, he wasn't all that good. And I, I think it's a more difficult conversation than some have made it seem.
1: Let me ask you this. He played 24 years in the majors. Yeah. Do you hold that against him? It almost seems like people do.
0: I go back and forth on this because there was a time where I'm like, okay, yeah, you're just accumulating stats. That's not as good as someone that can do it over a shorter period of time. But the fact that you can stick around playing what is supposed to be the most difficult defensive position outside of catcher, but just the most difficult defensive position for an older guy to go out there and play and for teams to continue to employ you and to give you the opportunity for you to go out – and stay on the field. There's something to be said for that, they, for sticking around that
1: teams long. Teams thought he was valuable enough to be an asset at the age of 44, right? 45. Right. So I don't know if that's Hall of Fame worthy, but I, some people seem to hold that against him, and I know it, it makes his numbers look not as See, good. Yeah,
0: so I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if you should hold that against him or not. If you're sticking around and, and people continue to give you a job and – I mean, shouldn't that be impressive? Shouldn't the fact that you continue to hold down a major league job where there's plenty of other capable 21, 22, 23-year-olds that would love to have it and would maybe even be comparable to what you're doing out there, teams value your contributions more? I don't don't know if it should be a negative.
1: Yeah, so I asked him about this, and I'll be writing about it for The Athletic at some point soon here. Um, He doesn't really... He doesn't give it too much thought. I can it's, see that being the case. It's out of his control. He's got enough going on in his life. He stays so busy that, you know, he's not going to sit there and read the clips and see what people are saying about his his candidacy. Uh, he did bring up an interesting point, though. He said the thing I'm most proud about is that you see a lot of guys, especially now, and and free agency plays into this, but. You don't see too many people still playing at 37, 38 years old, especially a position. A DH, Nelson Cruz, Mike Napoli, sure. But do you see many 37, 38-year-olds out there in the field? <laughs> not, no, not playing. He won shortstop. a gold glove at 39 playing shortstop. And I know gold glove awards are, especially they used to be, very arbitrary. And, you know, Rafael Palmeiro won a gold glove at first base, and he played like 20 games there. But – he was very proud of the fact that were an amazing 20 games. His, his counterparts were all retiring at 36, 37. And he's still out there winning gold gloves. And, you know, you, it speaks to his... He was always so nimble, so agile. He stayed in such great shape. It was funny. When I, when I was meeting with him, when I walked into his office, he was shirtless. <laughs> and he started telling me about how he's getting fat. And I'm like, this dude is like... He's still got like a six-pack, and he's, I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, and then he he was eating this meal from Publix, and he was eating this – he grabbed this bowl of mac and cheese, and he accidentally dropped it on the floor, and he yelled at me, and he's like, I was too busy talking to you. You made me drop my mac and cheese. You owe me a new mac and cheese. And I was like, well, you said you were getting fat. So <laughs> um, he looks like he could still play it. but And I do think – I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. I, I've tried to not – think about who I would vote for if I had a vote, and I'm still a few years away, just because I don't want to start thinking in certain methods, and then I get a vote, and I'm kind of pigeonholed into that. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it when I do a vote. And it's
0: easy to now, because there's been such a backlog of guys that I think are deserving, and you only have 10 votes, and not everyone even utilizes all 10. You're seeing... I think a shift in that, and you're seeing more people be open. And to be honest, I'm probably more in favor of a bigger hall as opposed to a smaller one.
1: Me too. I think it's you a should museum, just I mean. you should
0: remember the the players that had a huge impact on the game in a lot of different ways, and and sometimes positively and negatively. You can't just ignore certain things, certain aspects, or certain areas sure. because it might have given your sport a black eye at the time. It's still part of your history, and I think you should celebrate it for what it was for, and not necessarily condone everything that happened, but just this is what happened in our game. This is part of our history. And that's why I think voting 10 guys every year should be the the standard. And I think that should be—I think that's also stupid. You should have as many votes as you think. Are guys deserving to be in the Hall of Fame? All that said, there are so many guys that are deserving right now that I think are ahead of Omar that it's easy for me to say I wouldn't vote for him right now because I can find 10 more worthy candidates. It's not as simple as yes or no, but I think that should be the standard. It should just be a yes or no vote. Is this guy Hall of Fame worthy or not? You shouldn't have to be relegated to just
1: 10 votes. Let's also take a minute to say Kenny Lofton deserved a much better fate than he received when he got less than 5% in his first year and and then was kicked off the ballot. Yeah, that was perplexing. And every year we kind of look at that, especially when you see the the career that that Tim Raines had. And that's what I was going to bring up, is that... We, I'm glad Tim Raines was rewarded for his longevity, um, but then Kenny Lofton, their numbers were comparable. Maybe Lofton's worse. How much Lofton's do you think, do you think it
0: hurts Lofton because
1: the, la, the last half of
0: his career, he was on almost a different team every year. Yeah, and some people will view that as a negative. Well, he never stuck around more than one place for for very, for very long. You could also look at that as a lot of contenders every single year were targeting, and wanted him the, on their he, team.
1: He made the playoffs over like he had a crazy streak there. Um, and you would also think that he played in enough cities where all the voters got to see him up close. Yeah. You would have thought that would have helped him. But he had bad timing. I think he was on the year the first year. He was on the ballot the first year that, like, all those guys, Bonds, Clemens, Sosa, joined the ballot, and that hurt him. But, you know, if Harold Baines can get elected via the uh, Veterans, Committee. Veterans Committee, then Kenny Lofton should absolutely yeah. someday, I mean, too.
0: It's, even if you don't make a decision, yes or no, on Lofton, he should have stuck around a lot longer than just the where he was on the, the ballot for one year. That, that was an embarrassment to the voting process that I think really needs to be overhauled. And I already don't like the way that it's become almost political in the way people u- utilize their votes. Mm-hmm. But that's their vote. You know, they've, they've got their vote. They can use it how they want. And that's the system that's been in place. I wish the system would change, but this is what it is right now. Well, you're
1: a Hall of Famer in my book. Thank you, man.
0: I only have like nine years to go, or something. Until
1: uh, it's not all it's cracked up to be. I've heard. Yeah. Um, and uh, do you want to do a random Indian? Have we spoken about
0: spoken speak, speaking? Haven't we spoken about enough? Random Indians, Mark Langston. Langston,
1: I will say Dave Burpa. The, the story of how they all Richie Sexton became friends with Paul Sedotti, who is Taylor Swift's guitarist. He was a Strongsville grad, Ohio State grad. Um, played locally at bars all over the place in the 90s and the aughts and uh, I think that's cool he's maintained friendships with Langston and Viscal for almost 20 years now and it goes back to athletes want to be musicians and musicians want to be athletes well you ought to find an athlete so we can do this random Indian of the day and get out of here for this week so this random Indian is uh Who should I go with? Oh, there's a couple really good ones. All right. This random Indian was born on August 7th, 1967. He played 15 years in the majors. Wow. Um, Played for the Indians from 93 to 95. Okay. Pitcher. 39 appearances with the Indians, 21 starts, 18 out of the bullpen. 509 uh, ERA. Mark Clark. No. Uh. Signed as a free agent with them in 93. They traded him before the 96 season to the California Angels for Brian Anderson.
0: Oh, I should know this.
1: His middle name is (laughs) Allen. I want to say Allen. Lefty? Nope. No? I think he was a lefty. Do you want to know the other teams he pitched for? Phillies, Yankees, Royals, Orioles, Diamondbacks.
0: Uh... God, I know this, too. The minute you tell me, I'm
1: going to be so upset. I can give you one more clue, but it's going to give it away. Are you sure? Yeah.
0: Oh, it's... Uh, Jason Grimsley?
1: Yes. And my clue was
0: going to be... That he had a love of dropping in through ceiling tiles?
1: Yeah, he was the one who... Uh, went and retrieved Albert Bell's corked bat from the umpire's room and replaced it with Paul Sorrento's bat. <laughs> no how will will know. know. The, how will they know the difference? <laughs> uh, no pitcher has ever been more experienced at climbing through the air vents and disposing of ceiling tiles.
0: <laughs> All right, well, Hope everyone enjoyed the bonus episode this week of the Selby is Godcast, and we thank all of you that have subscribed to the podcast, given, a, given us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and have subscribed elsewhere, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Podbean, Overcast,
1: Pocketcast. You're just making these up now.
0: I'm just trying to remember to go off the top of my head. There is a bunch more, but thank you to everyone that has subscribed, and shout out to you for writing some terrific stories this week. And pleasure to help you recap it here on the podcast
1: i appreciate that uh we have a lot of cool stuff coming up too i mean it's crazy spring training around the corner now and instead of just sitting here and talking about what are they going to do what are they not going to do and now we can actually look ahead are you sure i think (laughs) i don't know
0: we'll see when these jerks actually decide to sign anybody and i'm talking about the entirety of the sport we're out of here have a good weekend everybody. See ya.